Welcome to Boston Venue, the channel podcast. This is the true and complete story of the legendary Boston music club, The Channel. From its shaky launch in one of Boston's grittiest neighborhoods, through the glory years of beer-soaked rock, punk, and reggae shows, from an incredible roster of artists, and its demise at the hands of local mobsters after a spectacular run. A demise that ultimately led to a murder that would take 25 years to solve. This podcast includes explicit language and violent episodes. No sugarcoating and no bullshit. Let's rock. In the last episode, we learned how the channel, despite stiff resistance from cops, selfie bouncers, promoters, and inspectors, had defied the odds and not only stayed open, but was quickly becoming a scene unto itself. It was the beginning of summer, and we opened Memorial Day weekend. All the students were gone. Boston, in many ways, seemed like a ghost town. So we needed to do some creative booking and marketing to try to get some people down. We really uh, reached out and tried to book some as many bands as we could. You know, we figured, you know, bands that were known, whether they were oldies or locals, would attract uh, some people. So we booked bands like Iron Butterfly, Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels, Question Mark and the Mysterians, all stiffed. But then we had some nice surprises, you know, bands like the Stompers, the Fools, the Neighborhoods, they did very well. They basically made the weekends. I mean, we even tried so-called clone bands, bands like L.A. Women, that was a Doors clone band, Blushing Brides. They regularly did more than 1,000 people. They used to do a complete stone show. So between, you know, a few nationals that we managed to snag, like Steppenwolf, Eric Burden, and the strong local bands, we held out, and uh, even though at times it was a little challenging, we did okay. We also brought in some reggae acts and just kind of started to look into doing some so-called hardcore punk shows. We eventually started doing those and looking even at old ages shows. We started to contact more and more agencies. Pretty soon, they started to respond when they realized that we weren't going to close, we we're going we to be there for a while. We also got a lot of media attention. The Globe, the Herald, got a blurb once in a while in uh, Billboard or, you know, New Music Express. As that happened, we even had some agents reaching out to us, offering uh, some shows. Most of the shows were unknown, you know, trying to break into the market, but once in a while we'd get a, a decent avail and uh, we'd book it and, and do quite well. You know, many of the neighbors were not happy with our programming. Even though we weren't in an area that was contiguous to a residential uh, district, we'd get calls, we'd get notes. Once in a while, we'd get graffiti sprayed in, on the building, just kind of warning us that we should not bring certain elements into South Boston. The gamble seemed to be paying off. People liked what they saw and heard, and they kept coming back. Pretty soon, the channel was open six sometimes seven nights a week. The channel was quickly becoming more than just a club. It was now a scene, a scene made up of all scenes. A flyer from that time demonstrates the spectrum of diversity over the course of two weeks. Friday, Fahrenheit. 
Saturday, Johnny Winter. Wednesday, Ice-T. Friday, Meatloaf. Saturday, Black Uhuru. And Sunday, an all-ages show with Death Angel. Carter Allen, a longtime Boston DJ and music director on both WBCN and classic rocker WZLX, is also a music historian and author of several rock and roll histories. Uh, I was a guest DJ on New Music Nights down there starting in March of 1981, so uh, anytime there was local bands, or new bands rather, playing there, uh, I would provide the music in between. I'd spin music between the bands. One of the hot rising acts at the time that reflected the cross-genre and cross-cultural spirit of the channel was Bim Scala Bim. Formed in Boston as a ska band, heavily influenced by the bands in England's two-tone movement, as well as the music of The Clash, UB40, and Bob Marley, Bim's infectious sound led them to be one of the premier groups kickstarting the third wave of ska in the 80s. Other bands quickly followed their lead, resulting in a lively ska scene in Boston and spreading across much of the United States. The band was a frequent headliner, blending reggae, punk, and calypso into a mad rush of melodic energy. Dan Vitale, founder and creative force behind the band, recalls those crazy early days. Through friends at SMAP, Mark, the bass player, and myself started Bim Scala Bim sometime in 1983. Being a, one of the first reggae ska bands, punk-influenced reggae ska bands in the country, we sort of had an edge in that when Harry was looking for a band to open for a reggae band from Jamaica, like Burning Spear, he would ask us. He was also wide open to a lot of African music and Haitian music. We got to open for bands like King Sonny A Day, but the bands were great and they influenced our music quite a bit early on. So it was a great experience for us to be able to open for bands like that. The Boss Tones, back when they were called just the Boss Tones, not the Mighty Mighty Boston's open for us at our record release party at the channel. And uh, we wanted to shoot a video for our song, Digging a Hole. Harry let us film. It's still there. If you look for the old Digging a Hole video on YouTube, you can see us for the packed house of the channel. And it's a great memory. of all the unifying world beat sentiment, the channel was still dealing with some small town bullshit. The wise guys from Southie hadn't gone away. In fact, they tried to stage a hostile takeover. And that's not just a figure of speech. These guys were brimming with hostility as they tried to take the club over. So a few of the South Boston thugs that had tried to bully their way into a security gig managed to get hired by our head of security as bouncers. Unbeknownst to us, he was building his own team, you know, behind our backs. When we fired him one night for being too violent, we found we had a rebellion on our hands. 
It happened after a sold-out heavy metal show on a Friday night. Peter Boris was working as night manager when the rebellion started and remembers how it went down. It was a busy, sold-out heavy metal night, very loud, a lot of leather, a lot of chains, a lot of bikes, a lot of spiked hair, and uh, a lot of people. Walking through the club, I see over at the bar, bartender and a customer arguing back and forth. Uh, hands started flying. Security caught wind of it, they went over. Try to get the guy out. They forcefully went through the crowd and got him to the front door where the head of security stood. So now the head of security grabbed a hold of him and instead of walking him out and calming the situation down, he pushed him out, beating on him nonstop. Then his friends came out and saw what was happening. They joined in. So then our security had to go over there and try to stop it. The details saw what was going on, called for backup. Then all of a sudden, there's blue lights and cars coming out of everywhere, red lights, which was the ambulance that took the kid away. We talked about the incident. We agreed that her security had to go. At the end of the night, when the bright lights were on and the bands were loading out, all there was was uh, roadies in the back by the stage. Security people, about 14 of them, came up. You know, they made it pretty clear that they were threatening to do a little more than just walk out. During this standoff, and probably for the first time, I appreciated Peter carrying a concealed weapon. He had a license to carry because we dealt with a lot of cash late night and early morning. Needless to say, there were a lot of unsavory characters around. The next night, which wasn't as busy, enough security guys showed up that we got through okay. After that, we started to instill a new attitude in the place. I mean, we hired some women. We hired some guys that weren't big and tough, guys that had a brain more than a brawn. We started training people and, and making them aware that security was just that. It wasn't a fight. It was just a container situation, isolate it, and keep it under control. Meanwhile, as music fans started to take notice of the channel, so did some other, more powerful forces. The club had caught the attention of a regional music magnate named Morris Levy. Morris Levy owned Strawberry's Records, by far the biggest record retailer in greater Boston, even in New England. I met him in 1981, at the time unaware of his history of exploiting young black entertainers as depicted in the movie, Why Do Fools Fall in Love? You know, about Frankie Lyman and uh, his band, The Teenagers, a doo-wop band that had a hit song, and Morris somehow ended up taking most of the profits from their music. Levy became an early supporter of our open booking policy, and Strawberry's Records was far and away the most important advanced ticket seller for our national shows and even some of the more popular local shows. Sometimes they would sell hundreds of tickets for a single show. Strawberry's Records was the largest record retailer in Metro Boston, boasting 30 stores at its peak. For years, Strawberry's had one of the largest neon signs in the city located on Boston's Memorial Drive. It was a landmark and every bit as iconic as Kenmore Square's Sitco sign. Becky Lipton worked as a ticket coordinator for Strawberry's Records. Her husband, Ivan Lipton was the general manager of the chain. Becky was a close confidant of Morris Levy. We only had a couple stores at that time, and I had met Morris around that time. So I started working for Strawberries in 1978. I had been working on Boylston Street at another music store. He wanted to go gung-ho opening up stores, and 
I had worked at a lot of different locations. I had worked at the Kenmore Square store, the Harvard Square store, the Washington Street and Copley Square, which is was S1. He would send me to help set up all the stores, and I became the ticket agent for the entire chain. Morris Levy was a character and a bit of a scoundrel who seemed to court controversy. He just took me under his wing. He could be a little hard on me. I remember one time he made me actually cry in the office, and he came in and he said, did I make you cry? And I said, yes, you did. You hurt my feelings. And he said, well, I'm just trying to teach you something. And I really, truly believe that he did have a big heart. He was a philanthropist, and he did care about people. And it's well documented. He could be a hard ass, too. Besides strawberries, he owned or had major interest in multiple record companies and music publishing houses. Morris was a guy with an instinct to see where the money was going to come from next. He was an early promoter of rap and hip-hop and both managed and recorded various groups through his Sugar Hill and Roulette record labels. Managing, recording, and retailing. It was the Morris Levy triple dip. He operated from an upscale and imposing suite of offices on Broadway at 57th Street in Manhattan and held court behind a large desk. Over that desk was a wood carving that proclaimed... God, give me a bastard with talent. So I got to visiting him in New York every couple of months, and I would sit in his office, and people would come in and out, and he'd introduce me to various characters, everything from fading rock superstars to young up-and-coming rappers that uh, he was either trying to record or he was trying to take advantage of. One time, Morris invited me to his place in upstate New York uh, near a town called Ghent. It was called Sunnyview Farm, and he raised thoroughbred horses that uh, he raced in uh, New York raceways. So we're having lunch, and he introduced me to this middle-aged woman, and he said her name was Tuesday. We had a very pleasant lunch and talked and chatted. Later on, he told me that Tuesday was there to rehabilitate. She was staying there for a while. While we were having coffee, these two suspicious-looking guys uh, walked in, came out of a black limousine that was visible from the solarium. To me, they looked like New York mobsters. They didn't say much. Morris excused himself and left with them, kind of left us there. He was gone for about two hours, and uh, for two hours I played backgammon with Tuesday Weld. Levy was investigated for extortion in an incident involving heavy-duty mobsters in a multi-million dollar record wholesale deal. It was an anti-racketeering case prosecuted through the RICO Act, and it consumed his attention just as the Strawberries Records retail empire that he'd built was starting to crumble, amidst encroachment from competitors. The Tower Records Superstore was coming to Boston, and upstart Newbury Comics was gaining traction with their early commitment to CDs, indie vibe, and enchanting inventory of pop culture ephemera. was thriving in Boston in those days, but it was complicated. There were turf wars and turncoats, cops on mob payrolls, and people quote unquote 
disappearing on a regular basis. Scott Bernstein, author and organized crime expert, talks about the Boston mob in the 80s. You had Raymond Patriarca, the godfather, the namesake of the family. He ran the Patriarca crime family, which was New England's mafia wing, from a Federal Hill neighborhood in Providence. And then he had his number two in charge, Jerry Angiulo, who was the underboss of the Patriarch organization. Angiulo, who ran Boston with his brothers from the North End in a, uh, a small little storefront that they called the Doghouse. This was the foundation that was laid for the future unrest. Patriarcha named his son as his successor, and you had a capo from East Boston known as Joseph J.R. Russo, Russo's protege, who was also one of Angelo's protégés, uh, Vinny the Animal Ferrara. Ferrara representing the North End, Russo representing East Boston, in opposition to Raymond Patriarcha Jr. in Providence. Cadillac Frank Salemi was a very intriguing underworld figure. He was half Irish, half Italian, eventually had gravitated towards Patriarcha Sr. in Providence and had been actually doing a lot of personal muscle work, ended up going to prison for the attempted murder of a mob attorney where he blew up this guy's car and it took off this guy's leg. He was installed just the way that Billy Grasso was installed as protection for Patriarcha Jr., it looked like Patriarcha Jr. was going to place Salemi as the head of the Boston faction. And this ruffled a lot of feathers. J.R. Russo and Vinnie Ferrara had a dislike for Salemi. They looked at him as an interloper, kind of a carpetbagger. Even though he was from Boston, he hadn't been in town in 20 years. At that time, he was firmly ensconced in the Providence faction of the family. Salemi surrounded himself with the Winter Hill Gang, Whitey Bulger, and Stevie Flemmy, as well as a group of young Irish hoodlums. By 1990, Salemi had ascended to the boss's seat, not just the boss of Boston, but had become the boss of the entire Patriarcha family. And then over the next five or six years, Salemi killed about a dozen people that were tied to that insurgents. Vincent the Animal Ferrara had his eye on the channel. Ferrara had acquired his nickname the old-fashioned way by brutally murdering enemies of the family, real or perceived. Ferrara, a made man, was rising quickly through the ranks of La Cosa Nostra in Boston. Now he wanted to be in the club business, and the channel was on his radar. So Joseph Cerrone, you know, who by the mid-'80s was now a Knicks partner, you know, he used to come in once in a while and talk and have a drink and, you know, just hang out for a while. And one day he uh, came up to me and he said he had a really good business opportunity. He wanted me to meet a friend of his, a guy named Vincent Ferrara. Remember Joe Cicerone? He was the guy who'd bought the assets of the Mad Hatter and opened an oldies cocktail lounge in the spot the channel now occupied. Joe was a 30-something restaurant owner with a menacing look, always wore shaded glasses, and was a dead ringer for Raymond Jr. Patriarca. Joe was mostly interested in big-time sports betting. In fact any kind of gambling would do. As you may remember, he owned 50% of the original channel. Joe would often claim, Mac, pretty casually that he would say, I'm a genius, and he really believed it. He also claimed that he was barred from Atlantic City blackjack tables for counting cards. He would sometimes bet very large sums on uh, different sports, especially the Red Sox. You know, there would be weeks when he claimed he was 50000 or more up. There were other weeks when uh, he was looking for money to cover his losing bets. 
On one of those bad weeks, it was the summer of 1983, I believe, Joe decided he wanted to sell out, and he did. So Joe Cicerone asked Harry and his partners to meet with the animal. It didn't take much research to find out who Ferrara was, how he got his nickname, the animal. And I must say that all three of us were a little bit nervous. We actually tried to stall Joe for a while, you know, telling him we couldn't go today, it was too busy and everything else. But he had a way of showing up and just hanging around and looking menacing. We finally agreed that we would go with him and meet with his friend Ferrara. So I called Morris Levy for advice on how to handle Ferrara. I figured if anyone knew what to do, he would. He suggested that there was three of us at the channel, Jack Burke, my brother Peter, and myself. And Morris suggested that one of us stay behind and two of us go. That way we wouldn't be put in a position where we had to make a decision. We would tell them that we have to go back and check with our uh, third partner. Jack Burke was a business school graduate and trained accountant. He joined the channel management team in 1981 by buying out one of the minority partners. Harry and Jack eventually bought out Joe, and along with Peter, Harry's brother, formed the permanent ownership team. Two of these owners, Harry and Jack, would go to this meeting. Peter would stay behind. Jack and I went with Joe. Joe did the driving. We went to the north end, right onto Hanover Street. Joe parked in the side street. The street was bustling with tourists and locals, all the stores, restaurants were open. This one little restaurant right on Hanover Street that had a nice dining room, fully set with tablecloths. Despite the fact that it was lunchtime, the place was uh, closed tight. We thought that was a little weird, but we went to the door, we knocked, and uh, we were let in. A black-shirted, scowling guy shaped something like a refrigerator let us in locking the door behind us with a key, which he put in his shirt pocket. He led us into a table in the back of the restaurant, which wasn't visible from the street, and he asked us to sit down. So we sat there nervously waiting for the boss, as the guy called him. Vinnie Ferrara comes in, very trim-looking, you know, good-looking, tall guy, dark. He leaned over to shake our hand, and it was obvious that he had this big gun in the shoulder holster. It was like a forty-five or something. Ferrara sat down across from his now nervous guests and got right to the point. Hey, he says, uh, how would you guys like to have Frank Sinatra play your joint? Jack Burke remembers the meeting. He was you know, very kind of an imposing figure. He was a big guy. He looked a lot like Al Pacino in The Godfather, but much taller. He was very well-dressed, had a silk suit on. His hair was all perfectly coiffed and manicured. And we kind of were talking back and forth. And he was a little bit intimidating. It was very obvious that he had a shoulder holster. I remember one time turning around, looking at the door, which was behind us, locked. And I was like, oh, great. How am I going to get out of here if he decides to do something? So halfway through the conversation, we're going back and forth. And I looked around a couple different directions. And Mr. Ferrara just snapped at me across the table. A very loud voice, but look at me when I'm talking to you. So obviously being intimidated by him, I... Looked at him. Ferrara kept it simple. He wanted to be our partner. He said he had access to pretty much any uh, kind of entertainment that we wanted, and he had sources of uh, money, so we would always be flush with cash when we needed it. I told Ferrara that we would talk it over with our third partner, Peter, and that we'd let him know what our decision was. After much discussion, we decided the most intelligent thing to do was to go to our lawyer, Steve Marullo, and just lay out the whole situation to him. 
The next couple of months were tense times. As Ferrara, the animal, sought to force his way into an ownership position in the channel, he had hired a high-powered attorney and was coming straight for them. We made it clear uh, to all at the first meeting that we weren't interested in any kind of a partnership with Vinnie Ferrara. We told the lawyers for the right price that we would consider selling the business to Ferrara and Joe. We wouldn't take any paperback and we didn't want any hidden money. We didn't want him owing us any money because after all, how do you collect the debt from Vinnie Ferrara if he owes you money and he doesn't pay? His lawyer was pretty aggressive in setting up meetings at the beginning. It started to get a little expensive, even though we had our lawyer and retainer. Just kept uh, making the deal more and more complicated, thinking that everything needed to be covered. And after a while, the lawyer just stopped calling, and uh, you know we didn't hear from Vinnie Ferrara again or even thought about him much until we read about him a few years later in The Globe. On June 17, 1989, a Boston Globe headline read, Two linked to New England mob and attacks. The Globe story continues. Suspicion in who ordered the Salemi shooting fell immediately upon Vincent M. the Animal Ferrara, 40, a Boston College-educated accountant whom the FBI has publicly identified as one of a half-dozen capo regimes. The daily papers in Boston used to report on the mob wars the same way they reported on the Red Sox. They would run regular stories about the blood feuds between the guys in the North End you know, remnants of the Angelo crime family, which included Vinnie Ferrara, and the Patriarca organization in Providence that was in the process of ordaining one Cadillac Frank Salemi as the boss of the New England Mafia. Half a decade later, Cadillac Frank Salemi will leave his brutal mark on the history of the channel. In the next episode, the towers of power begin to crumble as new players make their presence known, sometimes with deadly results. episode provided by Bim Scalabim, Digging a Hole, Intro Music, John Butcher Axis. Contributing storytellers in this episode were Carter Allen, Dan Vitale, Peter Boris, Becky Lipton, Jack Burke, and Scott Bernstein, host of the original gangster podcast on radio.com. Boston Venue, The Channel Story was conceived and created by Harry Boris. Executive producer, David Ginsberg. Produced by Chachi LaPret. Written by Harry Boris. Contributing writer, David Ginsberg. Edited by Christopher O'Keefe. Recording engineer, Tori Lamb. Audio production by Tony Baglio and Dan Tebow. Graphic designer, Lisa St. John Bennett. I'm your narrator, John Laurenti. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends to check us out at thechannelstory.com or on Facebook, Boston Venue, The Channel Story. Leave your comments and share your stories. 